0: This morning, what we want to talk about is what do we do um, as we're walking through life with the seasons that have already occurred, with what's in the past, and how do we live wholeheartedly, and how do we live healthy when there are things that have happened in the past that have influenced and impacted us, and, and how do we get past that, and you know... um Part of what was happening on the panel last night, we talked about the seasons that we grieve, and when we walk through seasons that we grieve, those impact us in ways that can last for a lifetime, and how do we do that? And so we're going to talk today about seasons in the past, and how do we embrace the season we're in? given the seasons that we've walked through in the past. Tonight, Laura will be talking about living in the present. And like I mentioned last night, tomorrow Barbara will talk about um, faith for the future seasons. But today we're kind of looking into what do we do with the seasons that we've had in the past? So one of the things I want to point out is that seasons in the past have brought us all sorts of emotions and, and experiences and memories. And some of those are joyful and some of those are painful, some of them are very, very rewarding and very rich and very deep. And some of them were very challenging and had a lot of suffering involved. And some of them we don't even understand. There were things that happened in the subconscious. There were, there were things that even as children, we believed based on an experience we had. And we haven't realized it. But as an adult, that belief is still rooted in our mind. And we're functioning as if that belief were true. But it's very quite possible that that belief isn't true. So for example, as a child, I internalized that I needed to always do the right thing because that was what made God happy. That was what made my parents happy. My parents were great parents. They did a very good job of raising me. I internalized uber ultra responsibility. And I didn't realize that I had done that. I just thought that was life that this is life, this pressure that I feel that I didn't even know was pressure until I was about 30, this pressure that I feel to always make sure that I do the right thing and never let anybody down so that nobody is disappointed in me was rooted in a belief that as a child, nobody did anything wrong I just established this belief inside that I didn't know I was functioning under. So fast forward to when I'm 28, 29 years old and I can no longer maintain that amount of perfection, not that I was living perfectly before, but, but the stress of life gets to such a point that the, the belief system that worked as a child is no longer serving me well and I am falling apart under the stress of anxiety and I don't even know what the anxiety is about. So literally, and some of you've heard me say this before, I had a season of life where I would stand in front of my closet and I couldn't decide what to wear because maybe God had a certain shirt that was important for me to wear that day and if I didn't do the right thing, I'd be disobeying. I mean, I was that paralyzed with worry and fear and anxiety of doing the right thing every day, and when you take that drive to do the right thing all the time, and you overlay it with a desire to listen to the Holy Spirit and a belief that he is speaking, you get somebody who needs a therapist, <laughs> and, and, I'm not, and I'm not joking. I mean, it's funny, but, it, but it's not. I, I first ended up in the, um, in the Life Path program is where God led me, and I began to learn what it meant to just admit that I am powerless and I'll never be able to do it right. And there's something amazingly freeing in just saying that. And that God is the one who will lead and will guide. And when I turn my life over to him, that is when I am able to live the way he wants me to live. Not because I've just white knuckled and decided I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. I still want to live a holy and an upright life, but not out of my own resources, out of the resources of God. And so I can't, I can't say high enough what the Life Path ministry taught me. And then I got to a place where the crisis in my life was such that it was beyond going to a small group and talking about recovery type things. And that was when I ended up pursuing a counselor who I've sat with for many years. And I'll take six months off and then I'll go back and say, I need to talk again because this is rising its head again. And all of that is because a season in my past that was not necessarily crisis or trauma, led me to an underlying belief that then continued to influence me through adulthood. And at some point, it quit working very well. And so when you think about something that you had success at in the past, and what did you learn from that success? Did you learn that if you work really, really, really hard, that you'll get what you want and life will fall into place? So now you find that you're in this pattern of if I work really, really hard, then life will fall into place. And that then you find that you're actually bitter and resentment against God because I worked really, really hard here and everything didn't fall into place. So these lessons that we learn along the way actually teach us untruths that we don't realize are untruths until we bump into something where it's not working and we find that we're angry or we're depressed or we're worried, or we're confused, and we're like, wait, I thought A plus B equals C. And I did A, and I plus B, and it doesn't equal C. And something in our past taught us something that that seemed like it was a pattern. It seemed like it was a formula, but it's not playing out the way it's supposed to anymore. And we find that we either have to decide that God isn't who we thought He was, And and we don't want to follow him. And I'm guessing that most of us know people that have hit that place in life where they've said, God isn't what I thought he was and I don't need to serve that kind of a God. Or we realize that we're human and then in humility we say, I don't get it all. God is the God of the universe. He is the God of all eternity. And I don't get to know everything he knows. And so if there's something that does not compute, it's not about God not being God. It's about me being human and so then I stop and I say, "Okay, God, would you show me what it is that I have believed that's not true?" Because I I have this theory that a lot of what we deal with as grown as adults is because we have false beliefs about who God is based on our experiences, our seasons and what has happened in the past. So even if it was a joyful thing, if it was a painful thing, there are truths that we've taken in that maybe aren't truth. Are you with me? So what do we do with this when our impressions and our expectations are based on our experience rather than truth? So we have impressions of the world. We have expectations of the way the world works. We have impressions of God and who he is and expectations of God and how he works. We have impressions of ourselves and expectations of ourself. And all of those are based on our experience. And sometimes that's at the cost of truth. And so how do we get our roots down into truth and not allow ourselves to be blown and tossed by the waves when the storm rises, but be anchored in truth so that we can live the life to the full that God has for us, no matter what our past has been, because we know that Jesus is the Redeemer. We know that he has promised that we can have life and have it to the full. So no matter what has come before, we can live in the fullness that God has for us, but we need to know how. So to get there, I want to take us back to the very beginning. If you have a Bible, I'm going to be sitting in Genesis today, because we're going back. Because in my experience, there's kind of two places in the Bible where we can just so clearly see God's nature and his character without any of the twisting of the world or the enemy or the confusion and the the poor decisions that people made um, making things cloudy and confusing. We can see it in Genesis before the fall. We see what God set up as his perfect plan and we see it in Jesus Christ who came and lived a perfect life as our Redeemer. And so I want to look at those two things today to help us put our roots back into truth and and maybe take note of where it it bumps against a belief, a subconscious belief that you've had that maybe isn't actually true about yourself, about the world, about the way things work or about God. So when we get into Genesis 1, we find that I'm just going to start in 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on through chapter one and chapter two to talk with us about the creation. I'm not gonna read the whole creation, but what we know is that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed before the creation of the world. My son will say, I don't get that, Mom. How can there be something before there's something? I'm like, I don't get it either, but it's the truth. God existed before, and he said let there be light, and, and, and he created the heaven and the earth. And we see light and sun and moon, and we see land and water, and then the plants and the animals. And, and after every day, God says, and it was good. It was good. If you think about our planet, if you think about our planet when it's working well, if you think about the beauty that you've seen, you think about the places that you've been, the, the beach or the waterfalls or the, the fields at harvest time, if you think about the goodness of creation and you take that and you relate it to the character of God and you go, this is what he meant for us. This was his desire for us. And we only see a fallen world, <laughs> but the, the, the fallen world is the shadow of the glory he created. And yet the shadow is amazing And that is a piece of his character. That's a piece of his heart for us. When he made the delights of this world, he was thinking of you and he was thinking of me. And so as we consider who is God, what is his nature, what is his character, and we go back to the beginning, we go, it is good. Not just like, oh yeah, I'm good, but like a deep soul level, good. There was nothing wrong. It is good. And I want to read what happened when um, he created all the earth, he created all the animals, he created Adam. And I've got to find the right spot. Okay. So Adam got to name all the animals with God. So all the animals came in front. He named the animals and God was with him. He was partnering with him. So God gave him a job and God sat with him and partnered with him in that job. And that's another piece of God's character for us is that he intended to be present with us Any calling that he had, any job that he had for us, any work that we were to do, his intention at creation was that we would be side by side with him, partnering with him in what he gave us to do. He gave to Adam the task of naming the animals, and Adam got to do that. And he stood with Adam while he did that, and he partnered, and he was right there. And that's his heart for you and I. When we have a calling, when we have something that we're to do, his heart is that he would be right with us giving us the authority to do it, and yet never leaving our side as we do it. So this deep goodness and this deep presence and partnership. And then he gave Adam relationship. Because um, the Lord God placed man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. I want to explain something about sin. I don't think that God said, don't eat of this fruit because he just wanted something that he could punish people for. I think that God said, don't eat of this tree because he knew if we ate of that tree, we would be hurt. And he didn't want us to hurt. And I think sometimes when we look at God and we think about sin, we think of God as this killjoy who's saying, don't do this thing you like and don't do this thing you like and don't do this thing you like because that's righteousness. And we see him as kind of this arbitrary God who's just kind of knocking down all the things that are fun in life. And and that's not the reality of who God is. In the garden, when we see the perfect picture of who God is, we see him putting a boundary up for his people. And the boundary is not because he's arbitrary. The boundary is because he cares about our heart and he knew. He knew how much it would hurt us to know good and evil. He wanted to carry that for us, you guys. He wanted to be the only one who knew the darkness and the depravity of evil. He put a boundary up because he knew how bad it would hurt us and hurt humankind. And we need to recognize that when we bump into things in scripture that says they are sin, it is not just God being arbitrary. It is God caring for our soul. He names it sin because he knows it would hurt us, not because he just wants us to be perfect. And so we see in the garden a God who gives us this deep goodness, who gives us his presence in partnership, who gives us boundaries for our own good, and recognizes in verse 18 of chapter 2, "'The Lord God said, "'It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him.'" So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky— He brought them to man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each of them. And as they went through all of this, he realized, but there is no partner for Adam. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. So the other thing that God reveals about his nature before the fall is that he created us for relationship and that he wasn't willing to rest until Adam had a partner and a relationship and someone to do life with. I used to teach at a camp and we would um, do expository Bible teaching with kids and we were teaching this passage. And so I said to these six and seven year olds, I said, what do you think Adam thought when he saw Eve? I mean, she was perfect. Amy laughed. She's heard this story before, haven't you? (laughs) <laughs> and this little seven or eight year old boy, I said, What do you think Adam thought? And he goes, Hot damn. <laughs> Probably pretty close to true. <laughs> and here's what God told them God blessed them. And he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So we've got goodness, his presence, boundaries that are for our good, relationship, and now we have a purpose. We have a calling. God created each of us with a purpose, with an internal desire to do something for his kingdom. And he gave it here to Adam and Eve. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Can I just say this? And I haven't been able to preach this from Salem Alliance, but I can say it at a women's retreat. One of the most amazing things about God's character to me, one of the things that demonstrates his goodness in a way that's just like, are you kidding me? Is that the one thing he told them to do, be fruitful and multiply, is connected to the greatest human pleasure that he made. Did you catch that? This is our God. The greatest human pleasure he made is connected to the calling on our lives. This is your God. The calling on your life is connected to the thing that he created you to love to do. I love to get to do this, and it's what he created me to do, and it's what he's called me to do. Our calling is connected to the pleasure he created us for, and that is still true today. And so when we, when we muddle through and go, well, it's just my job and I have to do it, we're missing the character of God who created us to love the thing that he knew he would call us to do. This is God, and yet he put a bad choice in the garden. Why did he put a bad choice in the garden? You that have raised kids, you know what I mean. You know, that was a bad choice. Why not just leave it out? If he knew how bad it would hurt us to know the knowledge of good and evil, why not just not plant the tree? I don't know the whole answer to that. I know people who have wrestled with that just the way God set up the earth. But here's my best guess. Here's what I settle in, in a God that I can trust. God wasn't willing to create a species of people who were robots, who had no choice but to love him. God wanted a relationship with us. And if we have no choice, then that's not relationship. If if it's not my choice to love him, then that's just obligation and oppression. That's not relationship. Relationship. And God wanted us to be able to be in relationship with him. And so he put a bad choice in the garden because he was creating free will. And and the earth is a mess because of free will. We live in a broken world because of free will. And some of us go, why is that the way God set up the world? And I would have to say, I don't know. I'm not God. But something in his heart, something in his perfection, something in the way that he created his kingdom was that free will was a part of his perfection, That you and I would have the ability to choose or not choose the things of God or the things of this world. And because of free will, other people get to make choices that impact you and I. And so the drunk driver, or the stillborn baby, or the disease, or the earthquake, or the terrorists. In Genesis chapter 3, it says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? The first thing the enemy of the soul, the enemy of our soul does is he, he questions God. He causes us to doubt God. He questions what God has said. Of course we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. So God had said, don't eat of this tree. And the devil says, did God say you can't eat from any tree? So he's twisting God's word. He's warping the truth. He's causing confusion. And then when she says, no, God just said just this tree. He says, well, you won't die, the serpent replied. So he brings in deceit and lies. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So this serpent who whispered to Eve and is still whispering to us today says, God's not really trustworthy. He doesn't really have your best in mind. He doesn't really want what's good for you. He's just trying to protect his own. He just wants to be the only one with all the power. If you eat of this, then you'll get power. You'll be able to protect yourself from those people who might hurt you. You'll be able to guard your heart against that pain that you don't want to feel again. You've got to stand up for yourself. You need to know. You need knowledge so that you don't get caught again. And the enemy is whispering, and he's causing us to doubt God, and he's saying, is God really trustworthy? Is God really one that you can put your bedrock faith in no matter what? And the woman was convinced, just like you and I have been convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And we know the story. This is what we call the fall. It's the fall of man. Adam and Eve ate the apple. And, and it tells us in Romans that all of creation is groaning. For the redemption of the world. It wasn't just the sin of mankind, but it broke the perfect creation that God made. And so, this is the birth of sickness, of sin, of disease, of natural disasters. All of it was born right here in the brokenness in the garden. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So, they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked, the Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman. (laughs) And we know the story. And so as we look at our own seasons in the past, and we line that up with the God of Genesis, where have we... Misapportioned his character because of our experience. I know for me, I have a lot of tendencies towards self-protection, because there and and it comes out in controlling. When I get stressed, when I get tense, when I'm not sure how something's going to happen, I just I shut down. I control myself. I control others. I control the situation. I withdraw because I don't want to feel the same kind of pain I've felt before. And so I I turn into self-protection rather than trusting God to be the one to protect me. And yet we see even in Genesis 3, in God's response to Adam and Eve, his response to us in our brokenness and our sin. And here's what we see. We see, number one, that he seeks us out, even when he knows that we've sinned. See, before the fall, God came and he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And the day of the fall, he came back to the garden and, and trust me, he knew what had happened. And he came and he said, where are you? And he sought them out, even though he knew that they had sinned, even though he knew that they now knew the brokenness of the world, even though he knew all those things, he sought them out. And in Jesus Christ, we see that he is still seeking us today. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. God is a God who seeks us out in our brokenness, in our sinfulness. He will not leave us alone. If we do not have God by our side, it is because we are cold shouldering him, not because he is cold shouldering us. We see that he provides. In Genesis 4, verse 21, it tells us, let's see, that's not four. It's three. Genesis three twenty one, And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife this was the first sacrifice, ladies. He provided for their needs because they now knew they were naked, and so he provided clothing for them. And you recognize that he provided for their needs because they sinned? Before they sinned, they didn't know they were naked. They didn't need clothes, and yet he provided for the needs that were exposed because of their sinfulness. And he is still providing for our needs. Jesus Christ died on the cross His blood was shed to cover our nakedness and our sin so that we could live in the fullness of forgiveness. He provides the Holy Spirit so that when we don't know what to do and and, and we are unwise and we are not all-knowing and we don't get to walk in the garden with him every night, he gave us his Holy Spirit back. He gave us his presence. Remember in the garden, he had that presence and that partnership. He gave it back in the redemption of Christ. He provides for us. He is present with us. He says, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. He restored everything that we lost because of our sinfulness in Jesus Christ. And even in Genesis, before the judgment was fully spoken, he provided the promise of his redemption. We look at Genesis chapter 3, when the Lord had seen what had happened and, and he was telling them what was going to happen because of their sin. And he said to the serpent, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between her offspring and your offspring. And this is one seed. And he says, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And it was the, it was the foreshadowing and the prophecy of the crucifixion. When Jesus was killed on the cross, that was Satan striking his heel. And yet when he rose from the dead, it was him crushing Satan's head. Right here in the very beginning, when God showed us his nature and his character, when he showed us through creation how he wanted his perfect kingdom to be, and when we failed, then he showed us his heart for us, even in our failure. Because he pursues us in our sin, and he's present with us in our imperfection, and he promises his redemption even before he finishes pronouncing the curses of what the sin means. This is our God. Sometimes people will say, well, God is in control. And whatever just happened was what he wanted to happen because he's trying to teach me something or he's... And I just, I just need to knock on that one for just a second today because absolutely God is sovereign. Absolutely, hands down. And yet in the garden, he put a bad choice to give us free will. And what that means is that not everything that happens on this earth is God's will. We see that when, when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray... He said, would you pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What that tells me is if we need to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, God's will is done in heaven perfectly, and God is asking us to pray that his will would be done perfectly on earth, that tells me that his will is not being done perfectly on earth. People get to choose things that are not God's will on a daily basis. Creation is broken, and natural disasters happen, and disease happen, and God didn't ever want that to happen. He told us not to do it, and we did it anyway. And so I love this picture of Redeemer, the redeeming God, and it helps me so much as opposed to the picture of the controlling God. Because in the controlling God, we can look back at our lives and all of us have things that we would look back on and go, if the, there is a God who did this to me, or even a God who said, I will allow this to happen, and in his sovereignty, he does have to allow. And yet, if that's, our, if that's the vocabulary we choose, if that's the filter that we choose, then God is the bad guy. Because if a God would let these things happen, then how can I trust that God. And yet, if we will take this filter of God as Redeemer, the God who never wanted sin to enter the world in the first place, the God who wants our best and wants to be present with us and pursues us even when we have sinned, if we take this picture of the Redeemer who is making right everything the enemy means for evil, if we take this picture of the fact that there is an enemy and there is a force of evil and there is a force of good and God is good, then he gets to be the hero every single time. He gets to be the one who rescues us. He gets to be the one who makes it right. He gets to be the one who holds us and loves us when we're broken. Do you see the difference? We've we've got to get the mindset of God as our redeemer so that he can be the hero instead of the one being blamed. He didn't want this world to be broken. And we don't live in the fullness of his return yet. Jesus demonstrated his kingdom when he was here. Jesus took sickness and he healed all who were brought to him. He revealed God's heart and purpose. God's heart and purpose is for there to be no sickness. God's heart and purpose is for there to be no sin. God's heart and purpose is for all to come to him, for all to find repentance. This is what God is working towards in our world, and it's what he invites us to join with him as his church in working towards for his kingdom. But we don't live in the fullness of that promise yet because we still live in the time between the perfection of the garden and the perfection of eternity. And so there are times when we do not see the breakthrough of God's kingdom in the world in which we live. And it's not because... God's mad at us. It's because there is an enemy. He is the power and the principalities of this world, and we live in a battle. And we see the effects of the battle every day. And the effects of those battles are some of the things that happened in our seasons past. Paul said when he wrote to Timothy, He said, he was in prison and suffering, and he said, but I am not ashamed of it, for I know the one in whom I trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. Paul faced the same brokenness, the same sinfulness, the same injustice of the world that we live in, and he said, I know the one in whom I trust Can you and I say the same thing? The only way to make sense of our past seasons and live into our present season is to know the one in whom we trust. And if we don't know him, then we need to be students of his word. We need to be disciples of his presence. We need to lean into the Holy Spirit so that we know his nature, we know his character, and we know him as redeemer. In Luke Just before he died, Jesus was sharing the last supper with his disciples, and he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. The old covenant was one that God came to his people, and he said, I will be here as long as you do what you're supposed to. And the new covenant is one where he says, I will be their God and they will be my people and I will write my words on their heart and I will give them my spirit and my life will rise up in them. This cup is the new covenant between God and his people an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Today, when you go through the winter workshop, um, it's gonna be a self-guided reflection and you're gonna have an opportunity to take communion. What I encourage you and invite you to look at that cup as a reminder that God is a God who can be trusted no matter what your past season held. And God is a God who is redeeming now what the enemy intends for evil. And we press in in our broken world, and it's not easy, and it's not perfect, and it doesn't always turn out the way we want. It's not a formula. It is not A plus B equals C, but it is God, and he loves you, and he's present. Hebrews says it this way, therefore, We who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. Let's pray. God, if we don't know you as a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls, it's because we've been blinded by the lies and the deception of the enemy. And God, we want to know you as a strong and trustworthy anchor. So Lord, we commit ourselves to you as women of your word and women who will lean into being disciples of your presence that we might know the one that we have trusted, believing that you will take care of what we have entrusted to you. In your name, amen.